Hey everyone, welcome back to Adherent Apologetics. It's always brought to you by you with your support on Patreon.com. Today I'm joined by astronomer Dr. Hugh Ross. Uh, he's the founder and president of Reason to Believe, an organization dedicated to integrating scientific fact and biblical faith. He's authored many books, including um, Weathering Climate Change, Why the Universe the Way It Is, and Navigating Genesis, and so much more. He's an astrophysicist, a PhD. Uh, Dr. Ross, thank you so much for joining me today. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you. Yeah, I'm super pumped for this conversation to talk about um, the relationship between science and faith, kind of looking at the science behind some of the more common uh, theistic arguments, all kinds of fun stuff we're going to be talking about here in the next hour. Um, before we get into that stuff, uh, in case people don't know who you are, can you talk a little bit about like who you are and what you do? Well, I was born, raised, and educated in Canada. Uh, I got interested in pursuing astronomy when I was seven. In fact, I knew that would be my future career from the age of eight uh, onwards. Uh, so my background is astrophysics. Uh, I have a PhD from the University of Toronto. I did uh, postdoctoral research on quasars and galaxies at Caltech. I also served on the pastoral staff of a church that's sandwiched between Caltech and the Jet Propulsion Laboratory. And it's that church that helped me launch Reasons to Believe uh, some 35 uh, years ago. And Reasons to Believe is an organization that's focusing on the two books, the book of nature and the book of scripture, how God reveals himself in a trustworthy way through both books. And our goal is to use the latest discoveries in the book of nature to bring people to the book of scripture and into a relationship with Jesus Christ. Mm, that's great. Um, and I'm looking forward to talking to you about this. Uh, welcome, everyone, to join us. G Jesse, Ethan, John DePew, Susan, Slaymarin, says hi to Dr. Ross, everyone else who's joining me. Um, but just to start off, I think in, like, in culture today, it seems almost paradox paradoxical, the relationship between science and faith. It seems like they're almost like at war with each other. Um, but just to start off as like a scientist, like how do you define science? Well, it's science that brought me to the uh, Christian faith. I mean, science is a study of the realm of nature and what it's composed of and how it all works. And, uh, you know, when I was growing up, uh, every year I would look at a different subdiscipline of astronomy. When I was 16, I studied cosmology. That's the science of the origin and history of the universe. And even back then when I was studying it, as a 16 year old, the evidence was heavily favoring that the universe had the characteristics of the Big Bang. And if it's a Big Bang universe, the universe must have a beginning. If there's a beginning, there must be a cosmic beginner. I was not raised in a Christian home. In fact, I didn't really get to know Christians well until I became a postdoctoral fellow at Caltech. Uh, but it was through recognizing that there has to be a cosmic beginner that I began a search to find that beginner. And the first place I looked for that beginner was in the writings of Immanuel Kant and René Descartes and discovered they really didn't have the cosmology right. So then I began to look at the world's holy books. And it was after a two-year intense study that I realized of all the world's holy books, only the Bible gets all the science right and only the Bible predicts future scientific discoveries and predicts them in amazing ways and always with 100% precision. And uh, when I tell people I didn't get to know Christians until I was 27, 
That was actually have personal relationships with them. I did see two Christians from 30 feet away when I was 11 years old. And these were two businessmen that came into a public school and put a couple of boxes on our teacher's desk. But in those boxes were Gideon Bibles. So it's through a two-year study of a Gideon Bible uh, that I realized the book of nature indeed is consistent uh, with this book of scripture, the Bible. And I signed my name in the back of that Gideon Bible at age 19, giving my life to Jesus Christ. It's such an amazing story. And I think some of these discoveries that you made as a scientist, kind of like looking through the Bible um, and kind of like seeing how it can actually support like what we find in like modern cosmology and modern science it's so amazing and i appreciate like your eye and kind of like pointing this out but for someone listening like what are some of these things that you saw in the bible that kind of like uh were predicted and actually ended up being supported by modern science this actually is the gideon bible that brought me to faith in christ it's kind of worn out so i keep it in a special bag here but yeah what struck me was even the very first page of the bible genesis chapter one it's a story of creation and basically tells us uh, the history of the creation of the universe, Earth and Earth's life. And I realized at age 17, when I was first looking at it, everything is correctly stated according to the established scientific record. And everything is in the correct chronological sequence and realize this is far, far beyond the science at the time of Moses and that he was actually had to be inspired by God because he was accurately describing and putting everything in the right order. And then I began to go through the entire Old and New Testaments looking for science. Not every uh, page of the Bible is dealing with science, but a lot of pages are. I've noticed that was a big difference between the Bible and the holy books. Books like the Quran maybe have two or three pages a deal uh, with creation and creation history and the Bible, you have many dozens of chapters that do, especially in the book of Job. And so, uh, and realizing the Bible, for example, an astronomer, I was impressed how the Bible described thousands of years ago, the four fundamental features of big bang cosmology, namely that the universe has a space time beginning, how it expands from that space time beginning expands under laws of physics that are constant, that don't change, or one of those laws is a pervasive law of decay. And as a young physics student, I realized the Bible's declaring we live in a universe that gets progressively colder and colder as it gets older and older. Matter of fact, uh, if you look at what the Bible says about the universe, it actually tells you the rate at which the universe is cool with respect to time. And in the 21st century, we've got measurements of the past temperature history of the universe, and it fits with what the Bible declared thousands of years ago. That was probably one of the more dramatic things that convinced me. This book we call the Bible must be the inspired uh, word or message from the one that created the universe. Mm. Right. It's such an amazing thing. Um, so if you're going to point people, um, you talk about it's like entropic decay, uh, but if you're going to point people like towards like references in the Bible that you kind of looked at in your journey that kind of um, were like confirmed by science, like what specific like passages or things could you point people towards um, to kind of show these amazing predictions um, being made in the Bible? Well, there are many places in the Bible that tell us that the universe has a beginning. 
And if you look at the passages in both the New Testament that was written in Greek and the Old Testament in Hebrew, it only talks about the beginning of matter and energy at the beginning of space and time itself. Hebrews 11.3, the universe that we detect did not come from that which we can detect. And we can detect matter, energy, space, and time. You've got passages like 2 Timothy 1.9, a grace of God that we now experience was put into effect before the beginning of time. That's just one of several places in the Bible that specifically addresses that time was created, that time has a beginning. And uh, particularly Isaiah and Jeremiah speak about the expansion of the universe. Uh, usually it's translated in English, the stretching out of the heavens, but the Hebrew verb for stretch out is natah, and it means the expansion of the system that's being described. And it's in all three Hebrew verb forms, which implies that God created the universe with the property of ongoing expansion and how in the future history of the universe, this expansion is uh, continuous. All things which we astronomers today can verify. Uh, Jeremiah chapter 33, in particular verse 25, uh, talks about the laws that govern the heavens and the earth and how they're fixed. But when you read the entire chapter, God is saying to the Jews, you change your mind all the time, but I'm a God that does not change. As evidence, look at the laws that govern the heavens of the earth. As they don't change, I don't change. And you can go to Ecclesiastes, which makes the point that everything is subject to decay. Everything is running down. Uh, you've got the New Testament text uh, Romans 8, uh, 18 to 22, which makes the point that the entire universe is subjected uh, to this law of frustration or law of decay. And again, that's something we astronomers observe. No matter where we look in the universe, we see the second law of thermodynamics, the law of entropy. Uh, that means everything in this physical universe is undergoing uh, decay. Now, as a physics student, I can tell you this. If you have a system that's expanding under laws of physics that don't change, uh, where one of those laws is a pervasive law of decay, the law you get from that is the expansion will lead to a temperature decrease. And it'll be directly proportional. As the system expands, uh, the temperature will decrease proportionately. And therefore, the Bible thousands of years ago was telling us we live in a universe that gets colder and colder. It begins exceptionally hot and cools from that hot Big Bang to the state that it has today, and it will continue to cool on into the future. Hmm. It's amazing these predictions that um, can that come out of the Bible written thousands of years ago, and they can, we can kind of see playing out, um, not just in terms of like the apocalypse or thing, but things that you can uh, discover in science. It's so amazing. You hinted at the beginning of the universe, you know, the Bible predicts this, um, but well, as a science, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, just, just let me add this. It's not just those of us who are 21st century Christians that see this in the text. Mm -hmm. Jewish theologians that lived 800, 900, 1,000 years ago drew the same conclusions from their study of the Old Testament. Mm. 
That's amazing. It's just, it's really amazing to wrap my mind around. And with the beginning of the universe, um, it's obviously, it can be a debated issue, but this idea like the universe has a beginning, and as you were talking about in your testimony, you realize that if there's a beginning, there's a beginner. Uh, but why think that the universe would have to have a beginning in the first place as we move in? Um, it's like very popular in like cosmological arguments that there is a beginning, but like, do you, why do you think the science supports there being a beginning of the universe in the first place? Well, there are two lines of evidences for the beginning of the universe scientifically. Number one, when we astronomers look far away, we're looking back in time because of the velocity of light. And we look billions of light years away. We see that the galaxies are jammed much more tightly together than they are today. So we can actually observe the expansion of the universe uh, by looking at greater and greater distances. And as we look at those greater and greater distances, we see that it all points to a beginning where all the matter and energy uh, was in an infinitesimal volume. Um, and we can measure the date for that. Uh, we now have a date that's accurate to four places of the decimal, 13.79 uh, billion years ago, uh, plus and minus 0 0.04 billion. Uh, and then we have a theoretical piece of evidence. It's called the space-time theorems. And these space-time theorems uh, are based on the idea we live in a universe where there is mass. So one assumption is that the universe contains matter. Another assumption is that the movement of bodies in the universe are governed, at least at the gross scale, uh, by Einstein's theory of general relativity. And it was uh, Stephen Hawking, Roger Penrose, and George Ellis uh, that in late 1960s and 1970 produced the first of the space-time theorems, which basically says that the universe has these properties and nobody doubts that it does uh, because we can definitely see that there's matter in the universe and that general relativity indeed accurately describes the movements of bodies in the universe. Then there must be an actual beginning of space and time. As Hawking himself uh, bragged in the early 1970s, we proved that time was created. We proved that time has a beginning. Well, today we have over 30 space-time theorems, theorems that are much more powerful than the ones that Hawking and Penrose produced. And so uh, there really is no basis of scientific doubt that the universe must have a beginning. And in my latest book on this, the fourth edition of the Crater in the Cosmos, I talk about the latest theoretical challenges to the universe having a beginning and some of the latest observations we have that refute those challenges. But it makes the point, the more we learn about the universe, the greater the strength of scientific evidence that the universe indeed has a space-time beginning. And by the way, anybody can get a free chapter of that book at reasons.org slash Ross. I'm sure it's a great book. Uh, one thing I'm really curious is you talked about um, about 13.8 billion years ago, we have this singularity um, where, where the universe kind of expands out of this extremely like um, small, hot, dense state. One thing that's remarkable, I think, is how small this state was. Like when we're tracking back into the singularity, like how small um, is this like state that we can trace to at the singularity? Well, we know it has one of two possible states an infinitely small volume or a near infinitely small volume. And I use the word volume because uh, we know that 
uh, when the universe was extremely young, uh, it was governed by nine dimensions of space that were rapidly expanding from the cosmic creation event. When the universe was uh, 100 thousandths of a trillionth of a trillionth of a trillionth of a second old, six of those dimensions stopped expanding. We still have nine today, but the six are so tiny uh, that they're orders and orders of magnitude smaller than the diameter of an electron. It's pretty amazing how small um, this like singularity is, and it, it just I think it's remarkable to think of. why I asked you. Um, you mentioned Stephen Hawking, and I'm curious because you know a lot of scientists and your colleagues they they aren't believers. They wouldn't believe in God. Um, maybe they'd hold to like a multiverse, or there's like some sort of beginning without God. Um, Hawking's been famous for like prom promoting different ideas regarding like a multiverse or um, a no boundaries, I believe, called version of like the multiverse. So with, in terms of like alternate theor theories, like they're just being like some sort of like concrete beginning to the universe. Why would you think that they actually, in fact, would fail? Well, I'll give a brief answer. You'll find much more thorough answers uh, in the fourth edition of the creator and the cosmos. Uh, but just to define terms, the multiverse is this proposition that instead of just one universe, there's an infinite number of universes. And they also posit from a non-theistic perspective, each of those universes is different from all other universes. And it was basically proposed as a way to get around the fine-tuning argument for God, saying the universe isn't fine-tuned, there's an infinite number of universes, they're all different from one another. So by pure chance, we're going to wind up with a universe with all the just right features that makes life possible. But what I write in the Creator and the Cosmos fourth edition, Leonard Susskind, himself an atheistic theoretical physicist, said, we atheists have got to stop using the multiverse. It's a bad argument. And uh, what he was pointing out is it explains everything. And an argument that explains everything explains nothing. Now, he kind of dropped it at that. In my book, I give an analogy to make his point. If you've got an infinite number of universes where they're all different, you're going to have an infinite number of planets just like planet Earth. And those infinite number of planet Earths, you're going to have an infinite variety of birch tree species. And we all know that birch trees peel white pieces of bark. But if you've got an infinite variety of birch tree species, one of those species, by pure chance, will peel white pieces of bark that measure, that are rectangular and measure eight and a half by 11 inches. And uh, these thin white pieces of birch bark will randomly fall on soil with random chemicals in them that'll make random markings on these pieces of a uh, birch bark. And uh, I argue in my book that in an infinite number of universes, we're all different from one another. Uh, those randomly falling pieces of birch bark on random chemicals in the soil will reproduce every paragraph, uh, every sentence, every diagram, every equation, and every research paper published by every research scientist in the history of the earth. Which means all those science research papers we see in our libraries didn't come from the minds of human beings. The multiverse did it. Mm. So. The multiverse was proposed to explain away the fine-tuning design of God, but it simultaneously explains away all fine-tuning, including the fine-tuning achievements of us human beings.
So I agree with Leonard Susskind. This is a terrible argument for an atheist to make. Mm. And I also point out my book, Notice, the argument was not proposed until the fine-tuning evidence for God became utterly overwhelming. Only then did it was it proposed. That in itself makes a case. It's not a good argument for an atheistic worldview. Right. So um, we'll get to fine-tuning in a second, which is going to be a lot of fun. But one last kind of like objection I kind of want to throw at you here is uh, Graham Oppie, um, a very good atheist philosopher. He's been talking about um, just kind of like what if there is a beginning of the universe, which he would, I think he would believe to tend to accept. And he'd say, well, there could just be like maybe like, like this singularity um, at like maybe like time equals zero um, and it's necessary. And from that singularity, everything expands and then we get to like me and you and existing eventually. Um, and he'd say like, you know, atheists like you and I would say that God would be like the necessary reality, um, which just brings the universe into existence. But I think Oppia would argue that in fact, that it'd be simpler if there was just the singularity that existed necessarily and everything comes forth through that. Um, so why would you think like an objection kind of like Oppie's would fail um, to, to accurately describe like the question of like, what is at the foundation of reality? Yeah, that's kind of pitting deism versus theism. Mm -hmm. You know, the deists would argue that everything is fine tuned at the beginning of the universe. Mm -hmm. And then it just unfolds and produces uh, what it produces uh, without the deity having any involvement whatsoever. He's only involved at the beginning. A lot of atheists adopt this view and don't realize that they're actually arguing for the existence of God. I mean, Stephen Hawking did that in his earlier books. So I referred to him as a deist. Late in his life, I think he evolved and become more of an agnostic atheist. Uh, but if you're pos positing that all a design is right there at the beginning, uh, that is philosophically deism. Contrasted with theism, which says that this God is a personal being, and as a personal being, is intimately engaging or interacting with what he created. And this is where I think the fine-tuning becomes compelling, because we can look at the fine-tuned features of the universe and say, to what degree does this fine-tuning manifest intelligence and knowledge and creativity and power and ongoing care and engagement. And uh, so I use that as an argument in my books to make the point, it's not just deism, it's full on theism. And it's full on theism where we can actually measure and come up with numbers, the degree to which this uh, being that created everything is more intelligent than us human beings, uh, more knowledgeable, more powerful, more caring, uh, uh, more technologically advanced than we are. And uh, therefore, since we can see that we are personal beings, the creator of the universe likewise must be a personal being. This is great. I do want to say uh, we will be answering any live questions at the end, um, so we'll get to those um, in about 20 minutes or so. Uh, one last objection that kind of just came to my mind um, in terms of like the beginning of the universe is, um, you know, it, it seems like a growing amount of people accept that there is some sort of necessary being or necessary foundation. Uh, but one thing I see a lot online is the idea that maybe like energy cannot be created or destroyed, like the law of conservation of energy, or like maybe matter cannot be created or destroyed. Um, so it seems like at best, like we have this hypothesis of like matter and energy just always existing and that's that. And from there, somehow we get like a cosmos and we have God existing and we have these two hypotheses where it seems like they're kind of like 
equal. Um, so do you have like a different response to that? Or do you think fine tuning does a lot sure. to like respond um, to that idea? Yeah, that's a misunderstanding the conservation laws. The conservation laws tell us that once the universe comes into existence, nothing can be created or destroyed. Hmm. And so the space-time theorems and the Bible declares that there is an actual beginning to matter, energy, space, and time. But from that point of beginning forward, uh, matter and energy are conserved. And we can prove that uh, through abundant astronomical observations. Indeed, the total quantity of matter and energy in the universe uh, is constant, and moreover, it's fine-tuned. I mean, we are talking earlier about how the fine-tuning reveals intelligence and knowledge and creativity and care. And for example, the rate at which the universe expands determines whether you get a universe with only carbon and, and helium. <laughs> That's if the universe expands faster than it does. Or a universe where all you've got are elements as heavy or heavier than iron, which happens when the universe expands a little more slowly. And likewise, if the universe expands too fast, you don't get galaxies and stars forming. If it expands too slowly, all you get are neutron stars and black holes. In either case, physical life is not possible. Well, my peers have measured the degree to which the mass of the universe and dark energy must be fine-tuned to make possible the existence of physical life. And the degree of fine-tuning is superior to one part in 10 to the 122nd power. What I've done in my books is to compare that level of fine-tuned design with the very best example we humans have been able to achieve. And in my opinion, that would be the LIGO gravity wave telescope, where we can measure a degree of fine-tuning of about one part in 10 to the 27th, uh, but that falls uh, far short of the fine-tuning we see in just two features of the universe. There's over 140 features of the universe where we see exquisite fine-tuning, but even just these two are sufficient to demonstrate that the creator of the universe, at a minimum, is 10 to the 90th power times more intelligent, more knowledgeable, more creative, and more powerful than we human beings. That not only establishes the existence of a personal God, but establishes it must be the personal God of the Bible. Because when I compare the different religions of the world, there's significant differences in the degree to which God fine-tunes and personally interacts. And so I love the fine-tuning argument because it not only establishes God's existence, it identifies which of the many gods out there must be the one that actually shaped our universe. Mm. This is great. And as we go into fine-tuning here, uh, you've talked about some of like your your favorite constants um, for fine tuning. It's a very good complement to like this idea of there being a beginning, kind of getting from that to God. Um, but like, what are some of your favorite examples of fine tuning that you could like point out um, to a skeptic or someone that's interested about like the fine tuning argument to show that there's actually a lot of like a lot of legs to this fine tuning argument? Well, there are, and the reason I mentioned the cosmic mass density and uh, the dark energy density. This is where we have the most spectacular, measurable evidence for fine-tuned design. 
I would agree with my colleague Fazal Rana, our staff biochemist, who are likely to find even greater fine-tuning design evidences in biology. The problem is we can't measure them. We can measure them in physics, as physics is a much simpler discipline. But to give you another example, it would be the ratio of the power of the electromagnetic force to the gravitational force. That has to be fine-tuned to within about one part and 10 to the 40th in order to have the full range of masses of stars we need for light to be possible with a necessary burning time and stability of those stars to make physical light possible. So that's one part in 10,000 trillion, trillion, trillion. Uh, and then you have to have a universe where you have an equal number of electrons to protons. That has to be fine-tuned to within one part in 10 to the 37 uh, at the minimum. And this is the universe. We actually see this example as a fine-tuned design at all size scales. Mm. So, for example, uh, there are tens of thousands of super galaxy clusters in our universe. The one we live in is unlike any other. It has the fine-tuned features that are necessary to make advanced life possible. So we see evidence for fine-tuned designs at the level of the universe, our super galaxy cluster, our galaxy cluster, our local group of galaxies, our galaxy, the local neighborhood within our Milky Way galaxy, our planetary system, our star. We now know, for example, every planet in our solar system must be fine-tuned to make advanced life possible here on planet Earth. We need every one of those planets to be exactly the way they are. The moon must be fine-tuned. Mm. And what encourages me as the president of reasons to believe, every week that goes by, there are scientific research papers that make a stronger case for fine-tuned design than we had the week before. I mean, one I've just recently written about, it's necessary that the moon form close enough to the Earth and the moon have a liquid uh, iron core uh, when it is born so that the uh, dynamo inside the moon, early moon and the early Earth can magnetically couple to produce a magnetosphere uh, that will shield the emerging Earth from having its ocean and its atmosphere sputtered away by solar radiation. And so the history of the moon must be exquisitely fine-tuned. That was just discovered a few weeks ago. It's so amazing all the discoveries that there are in fine-tuning. Uh, so one of the most common objections that I'll see to the fine-tuning argument is that the idea is you talked about there being these tens and thousands of uh, I believe supernovas that exist in the universe. Um, but the vast majority, like if we look in the universe, it seems very lifeless. Um, and on this obscure planet called Earth, we have you and me and everyone that's alive, and it's amazing, but the universe seems very lifeless outside of um, the planet Earth. And this would be kind of used as an objection against fine-tuning because, in fact, the universe may not, in fact, be fine-tuned because the universe is very lifeless outside of us. So how would you respond to like that kind of objection? Well, that was actually the subject of a debate I had with a particle physicist, Victor Stenger, at the International Skeptic Society Conference. And we have a video recording of that debate. Um, and he was raising that point, saying, hey, if there's a God, uh, then why is everywhere except planet Earth incapable of supporting 
any kind of advanced life. And it's basically making the point, uh, it seems like the universe is a huge waste of matter, energy, space, and time. And my response was, well, you need to fine tune the total amount of matter and the total amount of energy to have a home, one planet, in which advanced life can exist. Or referring to earlier, that the universe didn't have hundreds of billions of galaxies in it, uh, where those hundreds of billions of galaxies contribute only a quarter percent to the total stuff of the universe, uh, we wouldn't have a planet like Earth with all the elements we need to make advanced life possible. Make the universe slightly bigger or slightly smaller, there's no possibility for life anywhere else uh, in the universe. Which makes the point that it seems like there's a God out there that didn't think it was too expensive to create a universe with hundreds of billions of galaxies in it. So there could be one place in which he could have a species of physical intelligent life that he can engage and redeem from their sin and evil and prepare them for entry into the new creation. I mean, that's to me is just awesome that God would go to the extent of creating this entire physical universe, fine tuning the entirety of it just right so that we humans can live on this planet for a few thousand years and get ready for a creation where nothing will decay and we can have eternal fellowship and love with God and with one another. Such a beautiful story. Uh, so as you were talking about fine-tuning, you mentioned these constants, and there's so many where we talk about it being fine-tuned in 1 to the um, 10 to the like, 34th or something like along those lines. And one of the questions I always wonder about is, like, how do we generate these probabilities in terms of, like, the constant must be, like, within this range, and it has, like, maybe, like, this probability? Because it seems like, at least from my perspective, like, we could have, like, an infinite range of values assigned to, like, a particular constant. So how do we get from, like... Uh, determining how something may be fine-tuned or it's just within some sort of range or something along those lines. Yeah, what scientists do, they use a counterfactual approach. They'll look at a constant of physics, for example, and say, if we were to change the value uh, and make it larger by this much, what would happen to the dynamics of the universe? And so they would look at things like uh, uh, the four fundamental forces of physics and they realize change any one of them ever so slightly, you do not get stable atoms and molecules. But without stable atoms and molecules, clearly life is impossible. And so they actually are able to determine if we change it this much, will it be catastrophic to life? And what shocked them is that you only have to make extremely tiny changes to these fundamental constants before you find out that physical life is impossible anytime, anywhere uh, in the universe. And in my library here, I got 50 books uh, written by astronomers and physicists where they take this approach and say, okay, let's change it by this much and see what happens. Mm. And it's just astounding how catastrophic even the tiniest changes are. Right, fine-tuning is so amazing. There's just so many dire different directions you can go. Um, what we'll do now is we'll go to a couple um, just common objections that we'll say like maybe science is in conflict in faith or something along those lines, and we'll open up to live questions or super chats if you want to support the channel, anything like that. Um, the first objection that I hear is that there's just no evidence for the existence of God. I think it's uh, it's shared a lot in terms of like online with like uh, maybe like skeptics and such, where it's like 
there's no evidence for God because we need empirical evidence, things that we can test, demonstrate, poke at, look at, observe. Uh, in terms of like the existence of God, we have none of that. Um, so we shouldn't believe in God because we have no like empirical demonstration that he would exist. Uh, so how would you respond to like that kind of demonstra- um, objection to uh, the existence of God? Well, what I often hear from atheists is that we can't put God in a test tube. And so what they're doing is they're defining science the way a chemist would define science. Uh, but science is not limited to chemical experiments in a laboratory where you kind of put God in a test tube and then poke him around. Uh, after all, God created the entire universe. And so what I've written is that science is not just laboratory experiments. It's also observations. And so as an astronomer, we don't do laboratory experiments, but we observe what's going on in the universe. And that's a very powerful tool because what we observe are events that are happening in the past. In the laboratory, you're observing events in the present. In astronomy, you're observing events in the past. And also, I think we need to recognize that in Genesis, it tells us for six days, God creates. On the seventh day, he stops creating. And uh, you know, God began his day of rest when he created Adam and Eve. And since that time, he stepped back from his work of creating to focus on his work of redemption. And that means that a research scientist uh, doing study of, uh, say, plants and animals in the real world today, all they're going to see is natural process. And I hear that from life scientists all the time, saying we see no scientific evidence for divine miraculous intervention. Well, the problem is they're looking on the wrong day. They're looking in the human era. That's the day when God rests from his work of creation. If they were to go back and look before the human era, they would see abundant evidence. So I've written books making the point that, for example, uh, the fossil record is not consistent with molecular clocks. That inconsistency is evidence uh, for direct supernatural intervention. And the fact that we see that the speciation events and the extinction events are exactly what you need to compensate for the ongoing brightening of the sun. I think one reason why uh, paleontologists and biologists don't see the handiwork of God, they're not integrating the physics of the sun uh, with their observations of the fossil record. Uh, When you do, you get a very compelling case uh, for multiple supernatural interventions. But to me, that's the key. You have to be looking for God in the six days before uh, God went into a state of rest uh, to actually put God in a test tube. And that means using the sciences of geology, paleontology, uh, you know, genetics, and particularly astronomy. Uh, and that also explains why so many of us are working in the historical sciences are followers of Jesus Christ, and so few that are working in those sciences of focus on the present era are not followers how few of them are followers. I mean, in some cases, the difference is like a factor of 50 times uh, those that would claim to believe in God in an afterlife. Uh, one last thing I want to get to, and then we'll open up the Q&A for the last 15 minutes, is um, kind of going back on what I said here. I'll meet a lot of skeptics who will say that we need a demonstration that God exists. Like we have these great um, reasons if we look back in science, whether it's like paleontology or cosmology, 
or like maybe looking at the person of Jesus. Like there's these reasons and arguments that we can give uh, for God's existence, but none of that proves God. None of that would like demonstrate God with like empirical certainty. Like we need that empirical um, verification for God's existence. Like with that like very strong form of like scientism, how would you respond to kind of that as an objection to like a, having a reasonable belief in God? Well, you can watch for free a debate between me and the British chemist Peter Atkins on YouTube. And that subject was actually addressed. And so I was challenged, you know, what, what would be strong scientific evidences for God? And I said, well, the beginning of the universe argues for a cosmic beginner. The fact that we humans are distinct from all other life from planet Earth means that we're not the product of naturalistic evolution. I mean, we're not just differing in, uh, in degree. We differ in fundamental kind with the rest of Earth's life. And I said, then you've got the historical evidence for the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. And so those are three of the most powerful evidence. I also said, look, if you were to prove any one of those three not to be true, that would be catastrophic to the Christian faith. Well, in the debate I had with Peter Atkins, the moderator asked Peter, okay, what would persuade you? Hugh just said what would persuade him not to be a Christian, what would persuade you not to be an atheist? And he said, well, uh, maybe if uh, Jesus were to appear to me right in front of me right now on this show, uh, I would be persuaded. And he says, no, I really wouldn't. I would think I was suffering some kind of delusion of the mind. Yeah. And basically he was saying, there is no evidence whatsoever that would ever dissuade him from atheism. And uh, there's where uh, I think he lost the debate in the sense that he was proposing a position that wasn't falsifiable, that wasn't testable, that wasn't predictive. And Christianity is a testable faith. Yeah, that's so great. I remember actually listening to that debate and hearing Peter Atkins say that. And I was like, well, that's interesting. Um, it's definitely a different way of thinking about the question. Um, we'll go to a little bit of live Q&A here at the end. So if you have questions or super chats, we'll get to those. Uh, the first one is from the New Testament theologist. And he would say, what would Dr. Ross say to folks who say something like, well, Jesus affirmed a young earth? Um, he says in his own comment, that it seems like the New Testament has an apocalyptic concept of creation and isn't as concerned with origins. Well, I've written an entire book on this subject, A Matter of Days, a second edition, uh, where I basically take the reader through all the creation texts in the Bible, not just those in Genesis. And if you take those texts and interpret them literally and consistently, where you don't allow any text to contradict any other text, you get a very compelling case uh, that the universe and the earth must be much older than a few tens of thousands of years. So my position is that the Bible is an old earth book. It's not a young earth book. And, you know, it goes without saying that the scientific evidence overwhelmingly supports the idea that the universe indeed and the earth are billions of years old. And this is based on the concept that you see in the Belgic Confession, Article 2. Uh, there are two books of revelation that God gave us, the book of nature and the book of scripture. And because they're both from God, they cannot contradict one another. If we see an apparent contradiction, it means we're either misinterpreting the book of nature or we're misinterpreting the book of scripture. And in some cases, we're misinterpreting both. So that should be a signal to go back and do our homework. And also, I think it's important to point out the age of the earth 
is not a salvation issue. Mm -hmm. Just like we see in the book of Acts, that circumcision is not a salvation issue, neither is the age of the earth. So this should never divide Christians uh, from fellowship with one another. All right, thank you for that response. Another question here um, from Apocalypse here, which is that how do arguments regarding fine-tuning us get, to the, get us to the reality that Jesus is God in person, a crucified Jew in the first century? Isn't he where we get our basic information about who God is? It's really insightful question because I think a lot of the time we can talk about like these good arguments from like cosmology or fine-tuning, but how do we get to that, to a personal God who cares about our lives and um, is incarnate and died for our sins? So what do you think, Dr. Ross? Well, this is where uh, Sola Scriptura comes into play. Uh, the book of nature is a general revelation to all of humanity that there is a God and he's got specific attributes and he's got a specific plan for humanity. But it's a book of scripture that gives us the specifics on who the Redeemer is, how he redeems, and how we can come into relationship with him. And so we try to do it reasons to believe is look at the book of nature and make the point, first of all, it establishes deism. There must be a God that brought this universe into existence. And we look at the fine tuning and say, it's not just deism, it's theism. It's a personal God that is involved and engaged in an ongoing way with his creation. But when you look at the fine tuning, where you find the most spectacular evidence for fine tuning is what is necessary for billions of human beings on a single planet in a relatively short period of time uh, to be redeemed from their sin and evil. And when you establish that fine-tuning scientifically, it's really easy to say there's this book, the Bible, that gives us all the specifics. I mean, you basically laid it out. The only book in the entire panoply uh, of the religions of the world that really discusses uh, this Redeemer and how he redeems is the Bible. So that's a tool we use to get people from the book of scripture or book of nature into the book of scripture. That's great. Another question here from Redefine Living. I think this is going to the younger, the older debate, um, like the, the creation story in Genesis, which says, um, did God create the earth or the stars first? So maybe like talking about like how you interpret Genesis and like what's going on with the descriptions in, in the six days of creation. Yeah, the Bible doesn't explicitly address, address uh, whether or not the stars were created before the earth. Uh, what it does tell us, however, is that the sun, earth, the moon, uh, the stars uh, predate the six days of creation. And so the Bible really doesn't tell us much about what happened before the beginning of creation day one. But for example, we see in Genesis 1-2, is it establishes the initial conditions for the creation days. It's dark on the surface of the waters. The waters cover the whole surface of the earth. And uh, Job 38 makes the point that God had blanketed the early earth with clouds uh, that kept the waters dark, uh, which means there could well have been stars and galaxies and the sun beyond the earth, but their light would not reach the surface of the earth until on creation day one, God transforms our atmosphere from opaque to translucent. And not until creation day four does the atmosphere become transparent. And uh, back in 2018, a group of physicists actually did an experiment 
that established how indeed our atmosphere went from translucent to transparent. It all has to do with the great oxygenation events. The amount of oxygen in the atmosphere determines how clear the atmosphere will be. When you have less than 1% oxygen in the atmosphere, Earth's atmosphere is so hazy, light from the stars and the sun will reach the surface, but you won't be able to see the sun and stars in the sky. Not until the oxygen content goes above 8% does the atmosphere clear where creatures on the surface of the Earth can actually see where in the sky the sun, moon, and stars are. And that's what you see in Genesis 1.14. Let there be the great lights so that they serve as signs to mark seasons, days, and years, referring to the animals that God will create on creation day five. So the Bible is silent on this issue about which came first. The science is not silent. It's very clear that galaxies and stars uh, predate the formation of the Earth. Although we'll add this, we astronomers see stars forming to this very day. If you look in the Orion Nebula tonight with a pair of binoculars, uh, that pair of binoculars will reveal a whole lot of relatively newborn stars. So star formation has been proceeding since the time the universe was about a half billion years old. But most of the stars indeed formed uh, before the formation of the Earth. Great. Uh, another question here from um, Sam RN, Susan Lambeau, which, Lamboa, which says, um, what does Dr. Ross think about uh, the conservation of information? Well, that's um, a, a challenging question, and it depends on which information field you're referring to. Mm -hmm. I mean, if you're talking about the information <laughs> we humans are accumulating, that is rising exponentially. If you're talking about the information, for example, that's in the genome of uh, an animal that's relatively constant throughout the animal's uh, life, although that information does degrade according to thermodynamics. And so then there's what the scientists refer to as, um, you know, thermal entropy. Uh, and then there's information entropy. Those are different and they, they decay at different rates depending what system you're in. So a very challenging question. Uh, it's something we've addressed in a couple of our books. And I'm trying to think, of, yeah, Hubert Yockey, an agnostic uh, 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 information theorist, wrote a whole book on this a number of years ago. I still recommend it to people uh, to this day. Mm, that's great. Um, probably one more question here before we start to run out of time. Um, it's more by question more in biology, but I don't know if you have any thoughts on it, Dr. Ross. It's from Standing for Truth, which says, um, how would you explain the mtDNA and Y chromosome genetic variation that shows we are only a few mutations removed from the Adam and Eve sequence um, indicating a young first couple? Um, so I don't know if you have any thoughts on this and like this more like question based on biology, Dr. Ross. Well, uh, I was a co-author with Pazal Rana, our biochemist, on our book of Who is Adam? And uh, I was Dr. Fazal Rana that uh, wrote the chapters of mitochondrial DNA and Y chromosome genetic variation. I was basically arguing, when you look at the variation of mitochondrial DNA in the human population today, which basically trace the ancestry of all of us uh, through the genetic line of our mothers, because we only get mitochondrial DNA from our mothers. 
And like the males in the human population, uh, we get our Y chromosomes from our fathers. Uh, the mother does not contribute. So mitochondrial DNA and Y chromosome are both powerful tools uh, to enable us to determine uh, genetically a rough date uh, for the origin of humanity. And what we point out in our book, it indicates that we're relatively recently on the scene. You say, well, can you give us an exact date? Well, the dates you get from trying to determine the origin of humanity through mitochondrial DNA gives you a date of about 150,000 years ago, plus or minus 150,000 years. And you get a similar date with a Y chromosome. So the error bars are significant. And I've got an article on my uh, Today's New Reason to Believe blog that you'll see at reasons.org explaining the source of these uh, rather large errors. Now, what I find interesting, we actually get a more accurate date for the origin of Adam and Eve from the Bible than we do from genetics. Because in Genesis chapter 2, it tells us that God created Adam and Eve at a time when four known rivers came together in one location, the Gihon, the Pishon, the Tigris, and the Euphrates. Uh, only two of those rivers flow today. But during the last ice age, all four rivers were flowing. And the only place they come close together is in the southeastern portion of the Persian Gulf. But that was a time when virtually all of the Persian Gulf was dry land. Because during the last ice age, the sea levels were about three to 400 feet lower. And so that tells us that God created Adam and Eve uh, sometime during the last ice age. And the date range you get there is 15,000 to 130,000 years ago. Carbon-14 dating establishes that humans have been here uh, for at least 45,000 years. So in terms of combining what the Bible says uh, with the best scientific dates, uh, somewhere between 45 and 130,000 years ago. Right. Um, well, that's about all the time we're going to have for Q&A. So I thank everyone for your questions. Um, Dr. Ross, thank you so much for your time. Is there any kind of like last thoughts you want to bring forth um, to kind of share anything that you didn't get to? And then also feel free to like share um, how people can follow you and your work and your team at Believe. Well, I do answer questions on both my Facebook and Twitter page so people can engage me there. Uh, we do take questions at reasons.org. That's our website. And uh, you can get free chapters of about a half dozen of my books at reasons.org uh, slash Ross. And I just want to remind everybody, the more you learn about nature, the more evidence you'll see for the supernatural handiwork of God. And one way I demonstrate that is through a weekly blog called Today's New Reason to Believe, where I keep you up to date on some of the more spectacular uh, new scientific evidences that add to the weight of evidence for the Christian faith. All right, well, I want to say thank you so much, um, Dr. Ross, for coming on today and talking about um, science and faith and the beginning of the universe and fine tuning and all the various questions that came. Um, so thank you for that. There is a link down below. So if you want to follow Dr. Ross, you can follow. There's a link to his reasons.org place and you can explore the website. Lots of great content on there. Um, so thank you to everyone for tuning in. If you're new to it here in Apologetics, I'd encourage you to subscribe on your way out. Leave us a like or review. Feel free to share. Um, if you enjoy the show, you can support us on patreon.com slash 
Bachelor here in apologetics. We're about 85% funded, so your support means a lot. One, two, three dollars a month. It really helps. But Dr. Ross, thank you so much for your time. Um, You're welcome. My pleasure. And thank you, everyone, for tuning in. Jerry, Darth Barth, Ryan Polly, John DePew, um, Standing for Truth, everyone else that was here. Thank you so much, and have a good one, everyone. God bless.